This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 191 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with the incredible writer and social justice lawyer, Savala Tripchinsky. We talk about how she stopped a lifetime of dieting and started decolonizing her relationship with food, why pathologizing fatness and emotional eating is problematic, how different forms of oppression are interconnected, why there's so little legal protection for discrimination based on body size, and so much more. Can't wait to share a conversation with you in just a moment. I'm really excited about this one. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Mackenzie, who writes, my job involves backpacking in the backcountry for several days at a time, hiking anywhere from X miles to Y miles per day. Obviously, food planning and bringing enough food as well as consuming enough calories is very important. Even though I'm bringing enough food calorie-wise, I'm still having binge episodes where I feel like I need to eat everything in sight when I return from being out in the backcountry. Do you have any tips on how I could reduce those binge episodes given the unique context my job demands? So thanks, Mackenzie, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So yeah, this is a great example of how counting calories does not give us enough food, right? Your body clearly needs a lot more food than you're consuming in these backcountry trips if you're binging. And binging is almost universally a response to deprivation, which is why I say that. There are, of course, those rare cases where people binge solely as a self-soothing mechanism in response to trauma, not in response to deprivation. But of course, because we live in diet culture, it quickly becomes wrapped up in deprivation too, because, you know, diet culture is telling people you shouldn't be eating so much. Oh my God, you're going to gain weight. You're terrible, blah, 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 right? All the things that diet culture instills in us. And so sometimes what might have started out in those, you know, much rarer cases where there's not any deprivation to start, where it's just purely as a self-soothing mechanism, quickly gets wrapped up into deprivation as well. And in your case, Mackenzie, it sounds like it really is just solely because of deprivation here because you've been out there with a limited supply of food and you're just not getting enough to fully satisfy your body's needs and desires, which is why your body's making up for it when you get home by binging because it really is so smart. Our bodies are so smart. They know how to get what they need and they drive us to binge when we don't have enough. And so this really seems like a case where it's clear that you're not having enough. And even though you're paying attention and trying to have enough, which is great and rare for people in diet culture, honestly, to be prioritizing having enough, it's still not working because even when you count your calories in an effort to have enough, 
calorie counting actually doesn't give you enough because human bodies are not machines and they need a lot more than what some diet culture based system like calorie counting says they quote unquote should. Because remember, calorie counting only exists because of diet culture. It came out of the historical development of diet culture around the turn of the 20th century. And we wouldn't have calorie counting. We wouldn't have this notion that bodies need a certain amount of calories. We would just eat until we were satisfied if it weren't for diet culture. And so calorie counting might seem like it's useful in contexts like this where you're like, let me try to plan out and calculate how much food I'll need because I can only carry so much in my backpack. But actually, we can see here, too, that it just wildly underestimates actual humans' needs. So what I would recommend is packing a lot more food on those backpacking trips than you have been, like quadruple the amount that you've been allotting yourself. I'm talking about like so much more, just so you have an abundance and then eating as much as you feel like eating at every meal and snack and truly eating until you're satisfied and not feeling like you have to worry about having a limited ration of food for the X number of days that you're out there on this trip. And I know, practically speaking, it might be tough to carry that additional food in your backpack when you're on these trips because it takes up space, but it's really going to be so worth it to allow yourself to be more satisfied, to bring more food with you so that you can truly eat as much as you want and need and not feel deprived. And there are also special backpacking foods that you can get that are really full of energy, but packaged in such a way that it makes them easier to carry, like dehydrated foods that you just add water to when you're preparing and stuff like that. And so you can really pack an abundance of food and see if that helps with the binging, which I have a hunch that it will because calorie counting, again, is just notorious for underestimating everyone's calorie needs. And so that goes for everyone listening to this right now. Calorie counting is underestimating your calorie needs, and it's also underestimating Mackenzie's calorie needs who asked the question. So then, Mackenzie, if you're still binging consistently when bringing that additional food on your trips, when you have a real abundance of food on those trips, then there are a couple of things that could be at play here. One is that you could be chronically deprived because you're actually restricting consistently in your overall life, not just on the backpacking trips. And if that's the case, you really need to stop the restriction and consistently eat more in life, not just on the trips, although on the trips too, right? And likely get some professional help for recovery as well. So I have a bunch of therapists and dietitians who've been on the podcast, as I'm sure you've probably heard, that I really recommend for eating disorder recovery work. And you can find that list at christyharrison.com slash providers. That's christyharrison.com slash providers. That's kind of a short list. It hasn't been updated recently, so it's not every single one who's been on the podcast, but it's like most of the therapists and dietitians who've been on the show who see individual clients for diet culture recovery. So yeah, that is a really good place to start for getting professional help. And then the other possibility for you, Mackenzie, is that if you start packing like four or five times the amount of food you've been packing and you're still consistently binging when you get home, some of that deprivation you're experiencing on your hikes could be deprivation in terms of the variety of foods that you're eating. And you might need to start bringing more fun foods, you know, more interesting foods, more variety of foods like sweets and savory snacks that you really enjoy in addition to the more utilitarian foods, like meal foods that you might be bringing now. And so just giving yourself a wider range of foods so that you're not feeling sort of emotionally deprived of the variety that you seek. And then finally, I want to pose a larger question and possibly a somewhat uncomfortable question, which is this. Are you doing this job because you genuinely love the outdoors and hiking and that's the sole purpose for your job other than like to make money and live? 
Or is there also a part of you that's doing it because you want to keep your weight down or have overexercise be a part of your job? And I ask that because I've talked to a number of people over the years for whom working outdoors was a part of their disordered eating, including a couple guests on the podcast, like Sonia Renee Taylor, whose episode we just re-aired a few weeks ago, and Christy Amadio, who was in episode 129. Those guests both previously had jobs in outdoor education, and they both later admitted that one of their main motivations for taking those jobs was to try to lose weight and make sure they didn't gain weight. And so, Mackenzie, I would really invite you to explore that idea for yourself and look at whether this job is something that's serving to perpetuate your disordered eating, maybe. And if that's the case, is there some other career path, perhaps, that you might want to explore that would be more beneficial to your recovery? That's just something to put in the hopper and think about. I'm not saying, like, go out and change your job tomorrow. You might also love it. There might be a lot of really positive things about it. And maybe diet culture or disordered eating motivations aren't a part of it at all. But if you're constantly having to move your body and pack a limited amount of food for your job, it could be keeping you stuck in a place of deprivation and diet culture. And that's especially true if one of your motivations for doing it in the first place is coming from diet culture. So I hope that helps. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it a lot more quickly than I can here, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. The course has a wealth of audio and written content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating and walking you through them in depth. Plus, there's an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast where you get to ask your own questions and listen to hundreds of answers I've given to other participants already so that you can work through all kinds of different sticking points in intuitive eating and really put it into practice in your own life. When you join, you'll also get access to our private Facebook group, which is exclusively for course participants so that you can have real-time guidance from me and my team, as well as hundreds of other great people who are on this intuitive eating path. A participant with initials MO wrote to me and said, I had been listening to Food Psych for a long time and my relationship with food had improved, but signing up for the course helped me get to true and complete freedom from dieting and restriction. I'm so grateful I decided to sign up. I didn't understand how good life could be until I began working on freeing myself from the restrictions I had been self-imposing for far too long. I never imagined I would be able to answer the assessment at the end of the course as a true intuitive eater, totally free from moralizing food, but I did. Another participant named Emily said, you are just an effing legend. Since starting this course, I'm now making steps to starting a business, and that could not have happened without the freeing up of headspace that your content has created. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you so that you can do something like starting a business or whatever your dream is, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And by the way, now is a great time to sign up because next month I'm going to be releasing a big update to the course and the price will be going up accordingly. So this is a great time to get in there because you'll get all the content people are loving now from the course and you'll also automatically get the updates as soon as they drop for free. So it's a great time to get in there. ChristyHarrison.com slash course is the place to go to sign up. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Savala Trubchinsky. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. I think that my relationship with food growing up could be a 5,000 page book (laughs) (laughs) because it was really complicated really early on. Probably one of the important background bits of information is that I come from a 
mixed race family. My mom's side is the white side of our family. And my dad's side is the black and Mexican side of the family. And I grew up mostly with my mom and mostly with her, you know, my grandparents being her parents and aunts and uncles on her side of the family. And that that comes into play kind of as things unfold for me as a child. But the most pronounced thing that would mark my childhood experience of food was being on diets at a really, really young age. Like two or three or four was when I was first aware that I was too fat, quote unquote. And it's when my family, my mom's side of the family started to kind of see that as a problem and attempt to help me manage that problem with dieting, basically. And I went on and off diets, I mean, starting at that kind of preschool age, definitely throughout my entire childhood. And really until I was like 37, 36 years old. So anything that you would imagine an adult kind of experiencing who's who's going off and on diets, I experienced also as a kid, as a young kid. And it sounds like you were put on diets so young that you might not even remember what intuitive eating was like. Like you, you probably don't have a conscious memory of that. I don't. It's funny you say that because my sort of entree into this world of liberation around my body and around food was precisely through intuitive eating, which I heard about for a long time. And, you know, like so many people thought, well, that sounds really great once I'm thin, you know, like, (laughs) let me lose a lot of weight and then I'll try intuitive eating, you know? So I put it off for a long time, but as you know, when you get into it, they often talk about childhood or early childhood as being a time when your eating was sort of uninterrupted and uninfluenced and really connected to just your own wisdom in a very matter-of-fact way. And I really don't remember that. I remember feeling like, oh, shoot, maybe there's no way out for me when I realized, oh, I don't, I don't have a touchstone for that, you know, as a child. But my first food memories are around not eating and saying I didn't want to eat because I didn't want to be fat. And that was when I was, you know, a really chubby, maybe three or four year old and had learned from my family that I was fat and that that was a problem. Wow. That is so painful. It is. I mean, (laughs) I can talk about it matter-of-factly, you know, in this context, but over the years, I have shed many a tear and howled about it, you know, to myself and in therapy and with my parents and all of that. It was painful. Yeah. The sort of earliest reflections we get of like who we are in other people's eyes come from our families. And when your family is telling you like, there's this thing about you that's wrong and bad. And like the way that you fix that is not eating. Of course, you're going to do that. Of course, you're going to think, okay, let me like follow the rules. Let me be a good kid. Let me, you know, like they want this from me. So let me do that. Yeah. I think the innocence of childhood is sort of heartbreaking in this kind of context because at that age, I I had no tools to 
analyze what I was being told about myself, let alone to sort of stake out a different opinion about it or even to think about it, you know, to question it in any way. So that early, early food stuff for me, it was really deeply internalized, I think, because I was a little kid and what could I have done but just kind of swallow it whole and assume it was true. But then it also had somewhat of a public or kind of performative aspect to it. As I got a little bit older, I think when I was about seven years old, my mom enrolled me in this program called Shape Up. And it was basically weight loss for kids. And part of the program, it wasn't like a camp or anything. It was like, you know, a workbook and weekly sessions with a dietitian or something like that. Um, so I just did it all year, basically, uh, year round. But one of the components of that involved um, basically like telling people how much you weighed and kind of soliciting <laughs> their reaction and their feedback about it. Oof. Yeah. So oof is right. So when I was in second grade, I remember on Monday, I would, I'd have had my weigh-in on the weekend. And on Monday in second grade, when we had the kind of first circle time of the week, I would tell everyone what I weighed. And people would applaud if I had lost weight, you know? And these are these are my fellow seven-year-olds. Like, they were just doing what seemed right at the time. Or I think the year after that, there was some sort of a thing where um, in the lunch line, like through the program of Shape Up, I was supposed to tell the other kids to help me make good choices in the lunch line. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, so other kids would be like, Oh, great job, Savala. Like you're choosing the salad or, uh-oh, don't get that hamburger. You know, that, that kind of thing. So it was, <laughs> it was simultaneously a deeply private interior experience because I was so young, but also something that left me feeling really on display and kind of unsheltered and, and seen in a way that was confusing and hurtful and caused a lot of issues as I got older. I can imagine. Because it's basically like that That program sounds like it was conditioning you to solicit public shaming for your size and like solicit other people to be the food police. Yeah, I think that that was the idea. That was kind of the way that the program understood creating a support system to have a sort of network of your peers supporting you in this attempt to lose weight. I mean, it, it sounds so backwards and crazy and awful now. But, you know, this was the early 80s. Like, it was just a, a different a different era. I just, I should say, because my mom can come off pretty badly in this kind of conversation as my primary caregiver. Well, I definitely have at times been super angry and in, in so much pain around that aspect of how I was raised and her role in it, I've come to a place where I I just understand that she was doing her best and it was misguided and it was messed up, but she was trying to, to parent me in a way that she thought made sense. And she herself learned all kinds of 
really, really fat phobic things from her mother who learned them from her mother who learned them from her mother. I mean, literally, we have stories, you know, going back generations of this kind of behavior and mindset. So she didn't make all the same choices that I would have had her make, you know, but I don't want her to be villainized either in this in this tale. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think it is that's just such a good illustration of why this is a systemic issue and a cultural issue and not just an individual issue. Yeah. Of course, parents want to do right by their kids. Of course, they, you know, she thought she was doing the best she could because, I mean, God, too, at the time, like the early 80s was a heyday of diet culture. Like that was when everybody was doing aerobics and like low calorie and low fat and everything was kind of in full swing. So that plus the generational transmission of basically the trauma of dieting sounds like it it sort of inevitably pushed her to push you in that direction too. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I would add to that the waspiness of her family, wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, aspect of her her upbringing and her culture there was an aesthetic in her family that was just extremely fat phobic in the way that you, you know, kind of imagine like an old New England moneyed family to be. And that's the family that I was around most as a kid. My dad's side of the family, you know, as I, as I was saying earlier, is Black and Mexican. And culturally, you know, painting with a broad brush because people are people, but culturally there's much more acceptance and celebration even of body weight and body size diversity and people who are fat. And I use that word just as a descriptor about myself or other people in my family. So had I grown up on that side of the family, I think there would have been problems of some kind, but probably my body size and my body weight wouldn't have been one of them. I'll never forget when I was like 10 years old, my dad and I drove to LA to see his sisters. And one of his sisters, when she saw me get out of the car and I was very tall and big boned and fat at that time, she looked at me and her face lit up and her arms you know, open up to give me a hug. And she said, oh, you beautiful Amazon. And it was like the first time someone had said anything positive about my body. So, you know, I was coming off the holidays with my mom's side of the family where, you know, I I had to do the trampoline before dinner and I couldn't eat certain food and everyone very, very openly talked about how big I was getting to a really, really different kind of embrace of who I physically was. So, you know, it's something to reflect upon, can't undo the past, but there was definitely a kind of ethnic or cultural or racial component to the dynamic as a, as a child that I was experiencing too. Yeah, that makes so much sense. How was it for you to to have your aunt say that? What did you experience in that moment of being given positive feedback for your body? Well, it, it's the only thing I remember from that trip, <laughs> <laughs> except for peach cobbler that we made a little bit later. But, you know, that says something in and of itself that it has stayed with me. I think it was just 
a revelation. It was, I didn't quite know what to do with it, but I knew that it felt really, really good. And there were no strings attached. You know, it was like somebody giving you like the keys to a brand new car with no strings attached. You know, it was like, seriously, that's how you really feel. And there's no footnote, there's no parentheses, there's no, you would be a beautiful Amazon if you lost pounds. You know, it was just, totally free. And because it was free, I think it was really freeing that Auntie Renee just saw me in a way that I had never seen myself. And it didn't stop the cycle that I was in, you know, because I went home and then back into the, to the routine and the grind of dieting that, that I was on as a kid, but it was some kind of a little seed, you know, or like a little jewel that I kind of kept in my pocket. And I would definitely think about the fact that she had seen me that way all the time as I was younger. And, you know, even now I think about it and I think about it when I look at my daughter, who's a little one, she's four years old almost. And she definitely has my blueprint, you know, like from my dad's side of the family of just kind of a dense, thick kind of a build, you know, and, and a big kind of a build. And I see her and I, I I remember what my aunt said. So in that way, it feels like it was just three seconds of time, but, you know, it's really lasted decades for me. That's incredible. It makes me think of the research that just came out pretty recently, I think, showing that if there's even one person in a child's life who gives them that kind of you know, just glimmer of hope that like their body is okay. It can make a huge difference in their, in, you know, maybe not keeping them from necessarily falling prey to diet culture, but maybe somehow helping them come out of it years later or just giving them a little more self-esteem along the way. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it's, it's just a little tiny, tiny window of possibility, you know, or that's what it was at the time. And then as I grew up and started to pull my energy and my time away from dieting. It was like that little window was opening more and more and more and more. And I wouldn't say, you know, I'm cured. And now I never, ever, ever think about these things anymore. But absolutely that moment was really meaningful for me. Yeah, I'm so curious to know how you got from there to where you are now. Like, because it sounds like really dieting was all you knew for such a long time. And that was that really almost the word that comes to mind is like that colonized your relationship with food. Totally. Yeah. And so how did you kind of like decolonize that? (laughs) Well, I'm still decolonizing it. That's the first thing to say. (laughs) And I think that I probably will be for the rest of my life. And I have a lot of peace around that, you know, maybe not, maybe one day I'll wake up and really be like, oh man, it's over. I'm free. But I think I spent almost 40 years in that place. And I just accept that whatever that road looks like over the next 40 years is probably just part of what my experience on this planet will be. And So I can bring some curiosity and kind of spaciousness to it. But the way that I really stopped dieting was sort of not by choice, actually. (laughs) Um, 
as I look back, it was, it was, it really was not by choice. I mean, I had a baby and I gained weight in pregnancy, you know, big surprise. I did not lose any of the the weight that I gained in pregnancy, partly because I think I, I tried, but wasn't able to breastfeed. And so I switched to formula pretty early on. And, you know, I don't know if this is always true, but a lot of women talk about how breastfeeding helps them lose the baby weight, helps them, you know, as, unquote, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I didn't breastfeed. And I also had intense postpartum issues that required medication. And as you may know, you know, antidepressants and that class of medicine, they often cause people to gain weight or make it impossible to lose weight. So all of those things kind of stacked on top of each other put me in a place where I felt a really panicked, desperate urgency to lose weight. Like, I mean, it felt like the walls were closing in, you know, and I was sort of scrambling with my nails, trying to climb up them to get out of the room through a hole in the ceiling. That's how I felt about my body size, you know? And I think when my daughter was about six or seven months old, I started really rapidly cycling through every diet I could get my hands on. All of them I had already done at some earlier point in time, you know, like I am a true veteran. And what I found was that I could do it for maybe two weeks and then I just couldn't do it anymore. So that's that's what happened with Weight Watchers. I was like, okay, well, Weight Watchers, that didn't work. Maybe I just need Atkins. Maybe there's too many choices in Weight Watchers and I need something stricter. So let me try Atkins. And that lasted a couple weeks. And then I was like, well, maybe I don't like eating all that meat. Maybe I should be vegan, you know, and, and on and on and on. And over the course of, I don't know, maybe two months, it got to a point where it was like, I, I would pick a diet and I could be on it for like four hours. <laughs> I would find myself like in the kitchen, you know, as Isabel Fox and Duke says, like face down in a pan of brownies. Like it was like muscle fatigue. It was like, I, I, can't, I just can't, this is so weird. I just can't, I can't do it anymore. I don't understand what's wrong. And I had, I guess, I guess you could say, you know, water heats slowly and boils suddenly. So this was kind of the water slowly heating was me going through all these diets with like a shorter and shorter and shorter amount of time that I could comply with whatever the rules were and also increasing anxiety and fear and desperation. And then I was walking to school. I work at a school. So I was walking to school one day and I was wearing this foot boot, like, you know, those little, it's not like a cast, but it's like a gnarly black Velcro boot mm. that stabilizes your foot. Yeah. Like a walking cast. Yeah. Yeah. I was wearing one of those because I had injured my foot trying to get activity points in <laughs> Weight Watchers. <laughs> and I injured it so badly that I had to wear this cast for, I think it was two or three months. And 
couldn't work out. It was very ironic. But anyway, um, I, I was Googling as I very often did. Like I'm talking like several times a day, you know, whenever I was kind of standing in line with my phone doing nothing, I would Google, you know, safest way to lose weight or best way to lose baby weight or, you know, whatever. And I pulled out my phone and I started to type and I, I just couldn't do it. I don't know how else to, to describe it except to say that like, my fingers just froze over the phone. And I had this feeling kind of slowly welled up, you know, in the 30 seconds or whatever that I was standing there. And I just had this feeling inside of me, like, I cannot do it anymore. I just cannot do it anymore. I mean, the way that like true muscle fatigue feels, you know, when like you cannot do another sit up or lift that weight you know, one more rep. And I had no idea what that meant. I mean, I had never even, it had never occurred to me that I might have any time in my life ever that I wasn't dieting or trying to cling desperately to the weight that I had lost on my last diet. So I had no idea what that meant. It must have been kind of scary because it was it was like all you had known. Yeah, it was it was very scary. And <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny now, but one of the things that was so scary that I like the first, you know, one of the first thoughts I had was, oh my God, if I stop dieting, I'm gonna gain weight. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was the real scariness early mm-hmm. on. it's like um god i mean all roads lead to this problem right when your pain is so like deeply wrapped up in it but condensing the next few weeks eventually i stumbled back on onto intuitive eating and i ended up signing up for a course with this this place called be nourished in Oregon. I know you know them. Yep. Past podcast guests and friends of the show. (laughs) Yes, indeed. So that was, but you know what? Even that was really scary. Like I signed up and then I couldn't do it. And I emailed the admin and I was like, I signed up for this course and I've paid and it starts tomorrow, but I think I'm going to be going on a lot of business trips this summer, which is a total (laughs) lie. (laughs) Could I possibly get my money back? And they were like, well, we won't give you your money back. Totally reasonable, you know, but you can have a credit for the next time. And I did that a couple times (laughs) before actually being like, okay, I'm going to take this friggin' course and see what happens. I've totally had people do the same thing with my intuitive eating course. And I'm like, I get it. You know, like this is, this is scary. It's a big commitment. And, and, you know, the ones who end up coming back and like actually doing it, you know, end up saying like, yeah, I really wasn't ready. And I just needed to like circle around this for a long time before actually realizing that, you know, this was the, what the path that I needed to take. And I get it. Cause it's, I mean, when you haven't known anything else and when you're, desperately afraid of weight gain because of what you've been taught by diet culture and your family and all of it. It's like, it's terrifying. It's so terrifying. And I, I love that idea of like circling it. Like that's mm-hmm. exactly what I did and bless them for letting me <laughs> like eventually sign up and not just being like, okay, you're a problem customer, go away. <laughs> because it was the beginning, the, the beginning of real, real progress 
And the very beginning, I mean, I followed that course up with a lot of other stuff. And I've even done like a refresher of that course. And I'm always on the lookout for, you know, other things that can kind of bolster my skills or give me a new way to exist without dieting, you know. But that was kind of the first handhold or foothold I got into this kind of dark wilderness that was life without dieting. I'm curious how that even happened. Like, were you just Googling around this general area of like how to not diet in the, in those couple weeks and then stumbled on to be nourished or like, you know, how did you sort of decide to take that first step into that world to begin with? Well, so I found them at that point by Googling intuitive eating and like going through various rabbit holes on the internet and then stumbling upon the course that they have. But I had heard of intuitive eating, you know, way, way before then, like years and years before then, but just felt like, you know, there's no way I'm going to do this until I'm thin. And then maybe it's a good maintenance plan, you know. So I went back to that concept and somehow, you know, their website popped up. Wow. That's amazing. Very lucky. I know. And it's amazing too, how many people have intuitive, like a seed planted about intuitive eating and just aren't ready for it, you know, but like the, the concept is out there. It's especially now, I think becoming sort of trendy for places to write about it, even though they don't get it correct because oftentimes it's like oh this is the the great way to lose weight and like maintain it permanently or whatever and it's like that's not what this is about but and there is some of that out there i mean mm-hmm. truly right like yep. you will find people who have you know that's their business is kind of intuitive eating for weight loss yeah so it's definitely out there be beware as you're mm-hmm. googling this listeners um that's that's out there for sure And that's kind of what I think a lot of people who are first starting down that road and don't really know what it looks like and are very much just coming right out of diet culture. I feel like like, that's almost the first step of intuitive eating a lot of people take is like getting into Janine Roth or like these other sort of iterations of intuitive eating that are geared towards weight loss, which isn't really intuitive eating, but like, you know, it's sort of like twisting intuitive eating in the service of diet culture. It is. And I have to say, with all due respect, to Janine Roth and no shade to another woman who was trying to make it in the world. Even when I was in the throes of dieting, that kind of gospel of Janine Roth, you know, it, it really, I did not like it. I really chafed against it because, I mean, literally because I heard of her through Oprah. She was on the Oprah show at some point and Oprah maybe not anymore. I have no idea. But back then had a real, she was really wedded to this idea that inside every fat woman is a thin woman, you know, like she said in her Weight Watchers commercial and that fatness is a pathology. It's a sign of something. There's a reason for it. And the reason is dark, you know, and I just, I chafed against that. I bristled. It just made me really uncomfortable. And so I never really liked Janine Roth. I bought the books, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and thought maybe they'll work. Mm -hmm. But some part of me was like, oh, I don't like this. And I look back on that now. And what I think was happening was some part of me understood 
that my body is what it is because of my genes. I am in the body I'm in because this is the kind of body my dad had and the kind of body his whole side of the family has. And this is the genetic blueprint that I inherited. So while I certainly had pathological, quote unquote, relationship with food at certain points in my life, it was because I was dieting, right? Right. Because I was fighting who I actually naturally am. It wasn't because who I am is unnatural. You know what I mean? Yes. Oh, that is so well said. Well, thank you. (laughs) Some part of me, I couldn't have put my finger on it at the time, but some part of me, I think, knew that. Mm -hmm. And so I never really... I never really, really liked that message that she and Oprah kind of had about the pathology of fat people. That's really great that you had that intuition. It sounds like there's a part of you that was taking care of yourself, actually, by not getting sucked into that that idea that, you know, your fatness was because of some trauma or pathology in you. Well, I knew... I knew that it wasn't on on some level, you know, you would hear stories of sort of very often in the kind of like, we lost kind of issue of People Magazine or whatever. They have a, a woman who is in a thin body, but used to have a fat body. And she's telling her story. And very often there's some kind of like moment of crisis after which she starts overeating you know, somebody died or she suffered some kind of violent crime. You know, there's some, something happened that was really awful and dark and itself sort of traumatic. And the way that she coped or covered up the pain was through eating. And I just knew that that wasn't, that just wasn't me. That just, that just, that just had not been the facts of my life. So there had to be another way to understand fatness because I was fat and that wasn't that wasn't why yeah you just knew that that wasn't your story yeah and I think those you know that story can be so toxic for people who feel like they do see themselves in that to some degree because it's like I think a lot I mean I know from a lot of clients that I've had there's definitely sometimes an inciting incident for people where they're like, this is when I feel like I started using food for comfort. This is when I started binge eating or whatever. But also when we sort of peel back the layers and look at like what was going on for them before that happened, I would say in the vast majority of people that I've talked with about this, there was always fat phobia first. Yeah. That was predating. And and often, I mean, we know this from the research too, like people who are dieting and who are deprived of food have heightened sensitivity to food as a stimulus and heightened sensitivity to the reward values of food. And so moments of trauma where you need some self-soothing and like a reward value, you know, if you're already dieting, you're already deprived, you're already self-stigmatizing about your size, food is going to be a very salient way of self-soothing in those moments. And also, even if you're not doing it with any sort of history of restriction to start, even if it's like in those sort of 
rarer cases from what I've seen of like people who just sort of turn to food as an emotional coping mechanism from trauma in the absence of any fat phobia first, you're still living in diet culture. And so you're still getting the message from diet culture that like, oh my God, you're, what you're doing with food is really bad. It's making you gain weight and that's bad. So we have to police your body. You know, usually like the hammer comes down pretty quickly after even the most innocent kind of turning to food for comfort so that it just exacerbates the entire situation. You know, it's, it makes a problem, makes into a problem something that wasn't a problem. It was just like a coping mechanism. It turns that coping mechanism into something pathological. When it isn't really, it paints it as pathological. Yeah, that's spot on. And I don't dispute any woman who says I started to, you know, overeat or, you know, whatever because of something traumatic. I mean, if that's someone's story, that's their story. I just knew that it wasn't the only story, but it was the only story we heard. It was like, there has to be more out there or more to this. But we, at least in that time, that was the only show in town. (laughs) It was like, (laughs) something bad happened to you or you're messed up and that's why you eat too much. And if we can just fix it, then you can be the thin person that you're meant to be. Right. And I think that really, I mean, I've been doing some research on the history of diet culture for my book because I have a chapter on kind of like, how did we get here? Where is diet culture from? What, why is it a thing? And that idea of emotional pathology causing people to gain weight seems to have root in the 60s with like mm. a psychologist named Hilde Brook, who was very popular at the time, like, you know, really sort of started the whole idea of quote unquote childhood obesity and had this theory that people, that mothers overfeeding their children or substituting food for affection, like with emotionally withholding mothers would like substitute food for affection and the children would take the food as a substitute for the affection and therefore overconsume it, quote unquote. And that that's where fatness came from. And that that idea really kind of took hold because already diet culture was, you know, had been in full swing for like 75 years at that point. And people were increasingly like any diet, you know, because diets don't work long term and more and more people were getting on board the diet culture train. Then it was like, oh, God, why isn't this working? There must be you know, is there something wrong with me, basically, that I can't do this? And that that explanation was sort of like an easy, it it just like dovetailed nicely with the interests and the aims of the diet industry, where it was like, oh, yeah, it's because of because of you, because you're emotionally broken, because like, Mm -hmm. you're addicted to food, or you're an emotional eater, and was a really convenient way for diet culture to absolve itself of any responsibility rather than having, you know, people wake up and be like, wait, this doesn't work. I'm actually going to stop doing this thing that has failed me. Yeah. I think that is, well, first of all, I can't wait to read your book. I'm like, (laughs) oh, I didn't know any of that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But like, it's a one-two punch, you know, because the, the diet industry, you know, as you know, they tell you it's your problem. And they're also constantly kind of dangling this vision of some future you, you know, that's incredibly seductive. It's it's a really vicious cycle, you know, that the different aspects of the diet culture diet culture reinforce other aspects of it. Totally, like the carrot and the stick. Yeah, exactly. And I think I mean, it has been really really recently, like in the last few months that I have stopped, well, I shouldn't say stopped but that when I think about myself in the future, it's just 
me what I look like now, or I don't even really think about my body size and body weight because it may change in the future. You know, I mean, who knows? I may be heavier, I may be lighter in 10 years. I, I don't know. But that sort of like a ghost or like an apparition or a promise of a thinner person, a thinner you is really, really seductive. And I think that the diet culture like pushes it so hard. Like every time you see a commercial for (laughs) Weight Watchers, right? Or anything aimed at women, basically. Um, Uh, That it's really hard to let go of. I remember when I met the guy who I ended up marrying, I started Weight Watchers after we'd been dating a few months. And I remember telling him, kind of like, reassuring him, although he wasn't nervous about this, I was, kind of reassuring him that, yeah, he was dating a chubby girl, but really I was a skinny girl. And like, I'm back on the wagon and I'm going to get there, you know, and he was kind of like, okay, whatever, you know. And then if like fast forward, like 10 years and like a year ago, I remember saying to him, actually, honey, <laughs> I think you married a fat girl, just like straight up. And he was like, all right, cool. <laughs> like, I- I'm down with that. But to me, it was like finally letting go of that idea that there was some person trapped inside me by my evil, gluttonous appetites, you know, and instead just being um, a little more accepting and relaxed about what my body might look like or weigh or feel like um, at any given point in time. That's huge. And also that's really nice that he was so accepting and he wasn't invested in your size at all. Like you found a good one. (laughs) I did find a good one. Thank God I didn't ruin it because I used to quiz him early on. Like I was skeptical. Like well, have you ever dated a really fat girl? Have you ever dated a really thin girl? I was this way about race too. I was like, have you ever dated other black women? I was simultaneously afraid of being a fetish, you know, um, but also distrustful that he actually found me attractive. I mean, it's like such a mess. (laughs) Like, oh my God, I don't know how it worked out between us, but he was always, you know, I don't want to say neutral because, of course, you want your partner to be a, maybe a little more than neutral about your looks. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, he always, you know, found me attractive and, you know, blah, 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 but was very kind of like mystified about this weird obsession I had with kind of ferreting out whether something was wrong with him because he liked my body, you know? It's just, man, like, they don't make it easy. (laughs) They really don't make it easy. They really don't. And that's, I feel like that speaks to how, like, socialized, you know, unfortunately, so many women and femmes are to thinking that, like, if you're in a relationship with a cis man that, or, you know, a male person of any variety, really, like a masculine person, that they are going to want you to be small. That's the line that we're given. And just like in so many subtle ways too, like the princesses and the Disney movies and all of it, like everybody, you know, it's, we're told that from birth basically. And so like, I think when men and masculine folks have a different preference and there are so many out there who do, or who just don't care, like who don't give a shit about the size of someone's body, it just sort of 
doesn't jibe. It like does not compute in the brains of those of us who are socialized to think like, no, but you should, you're supposed to want me to be thin, you know? Totally. It's very unstabilizing, I think. And it made me really nervous for a long time. And occasionally I still do feel nervous about it just because those neural pathways are like five lane highways for me. But it's so much softer than it used to be. Like my grip on that has really softened. But I think, I mean, what you said reminded me of another thing that was really crucial for me had to do with racism and, you know, the way that we kind of normalize and elevate whiteness in so many ways in our culture. And, you know, this idea that a man, and I use the words man and women inclusively, that a man is supposed to like a thin woman It's very white, you know, in a lot of the brown parts of the world or brown cultures, that's just not the case. So something happened to me. I don't know exactly where it came from, but I began, you know, maybe like six or seven months into my journey toward liberation around weight. I began to see how much of my fear of of my own body size and fear of fatness and let's be honest, it's sort of disdain for fatness in others, I sometimes felt and projected onto them, was really, really tied up in, you know, call it what you want, racism, white supremacy, that they were cousins for me. And I started to see that a lot of my fear of being fat was actually fear about being a fat Black woman, to be accurate, I needed the black woman to be part of it too, because of stereotypes of like mammy and kind of the big, sassy, tough, workhorse black woman that are so flat and dehumanized and sticky in our culture. And I saw that like, if my husband were black, he's white, if he were black, I wouldn't have had the same concern about whether he genuinely liked, you know, my chunky, fleshy legs, you know? (laughs) And so I started to like put these pieces of the puzzle together. And then it became like, for me anyway, then it became like political in addition to sort of personally important for my salvation. It also became kind of like disgusting to me on a broader political level that it hadn't been before. And I became more committed and more tenacious to somehow by hook or crook freeing myself from diet culture and all the stuff that comes along with it. I'm so glad that that you did, you know, like that that came to you because it I feel like that connection between racism and body size has been so obscured and that's another thing of like the history of diet culture I've looked into is like really it did come out of this sort of 18th mid 18th century late 18th century like ideas about race basically and and the sort of fake racial hierarchy that was created at that time to justify the pre-existing oppression of people of color and black people already that existed it was like you know now there was this supposed evolutionary justification of like well here are the more evolved races and here are the less evolved races and like those ideas started to get popularized and Sabrina Strings, who's a professor of um, sociology, I think I'm going to have her on the show soon too, but she talks about like fearing the black body Mm. became 
kind of a thing at that point in history. I can't wait for that interview to come out. But yeah, I mean, it's obscured. But then once you look at it, it becomes pretty clear. It's like, oh, wow, these things are really, really connected. And I don't want to be part of it. You know, I just don't want to be part of that. I don't want to pass it to my kid. I don't want to do it to other human beings, especially women, although men deal with it too. I just don't want to, I don't want to do it anymore. And so the more reasons I have not to do it, the better, because the culture has always tried to kind of get you back in. Yeah. It has all these sneaky ways that it tries to pull you in. Oh, it's not a diet. It's wellness. Like that's yeah, the, like, oh, bane of my existence. Weight Watchers with their like WW now or something, oh, you know, that's know. Like, when Kentucky Fried Chicken became KFC. <laughs> it's like, it's still fried chicken, guys. I know. <laughs> you can't Don't hide say it. words anymore. Yeah. Oh, that, that's just so cool that you're going to have her on your show. That's amazing. I know. I'm so excited. I really, it's just, I mean, I think that's a part of like the history of diet culture too, that has not been explored enough. And that like another scholar, you know, maybe five or six years ago had written a book that included a lot of that stuff, but she, Sabrina Strings like really digs in, like it's so detailed and such incredible history that I had never really read about anywhere else and mind blowing. People are probably more ready for it too. Yeah. Than they were even five or six years ago. That's so true. I mean, I think one one thing about like the Trump, the post-Trump era really is that it's like woken a lot of people, a lot, woken a lot of white people up basically to yeah. the racism that has always existed in this country that I think a lot of white folks were able to just be like, well, we had a black president. We're good now, you know, and it's like, no. Yeah, totally. So now, yeah, now is a time that we're ready to be talking about this stuff. Yeah, I think so too. It makes me hopeful, you know, for my daughter, like even just the fact that there's Instagram and anytime I want to, I can go find images of fat people that sort of suit my taste and my style and, you know, reflect me in some way that I like. When I was younger, when I was a teenager, it was literally impossible. It was just literally impossible. You know, I don't think I saw people with my body reflected back to me in a neutral or positive way on a, any kind of a regular basis until I joined like Tumblr or Instagram like five years ago, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think like, oh, there's plenty about social media in the future that really scares the hell out of me. But, you know, I think about my daughter and that she, she will have challenges with social media, but that will not be one of them, hopefully. You know, she will be able to see herself reflected back to her from the world. And also to have you modeling a different way. Like, because you, yeah. <laughs> you've you now broken the cycle. Not that it's like, not that you're fully there and that anyone ever fully arrives anywhere, really. But like, you know, but you you now have that awareness and you're working toward not being invested in diet culture anymore. And like, that's such a gift that so many people don't get and that you didn't get from your mom or that she didn't get from her mom. And so that's pretty amazing. I wish I could say she was my inspiration. <laughs> that would be kind of like the beautiful, appropriate thing to say. But when I started this journey, it was, it was just my own desperation and panic and sense of being like totally wrung out and worn out. Of course, it's a beautiful, happy fact that I think it also makes me a more 
loving mom, you know, not that my mom loved me less, but that I'm able to see my daughter and see myself around my daughter without those kind of fat phobic eyes, you know? Yeah. You can treat her in a more loving way with regard to her body. Yes, exactly. And we follow this idea about the division of responsibility with food. Have you, does that ring a bell? Yeah, totally. We've um, talked about it a little on the podcast, the Ellen Satter approach. Yeah, the Ellen Satter approach. Good old Ellen. It's great. You know, what we do, we just don't comment on her food or her appetites. You know, I mean, we might talk about like, oh, it's not crunchy or yeah, we're hungry. It's time for dinner or, you know, whatever. But we don't in any way police how much food she puts in her body. So we think of it as like our responsibility is kind of to put the array of food on the table or in her lunchbox or whatever. And then it's her responsibility what she's going to eat, whether that's half a sandwich or she's really hungry and she wants two sandwiches. I mean, no doubt we're doing something wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, all parents are, I guess. Yes, but it's so... It's so, so, so different from how I grew up. And our our hope is that we just, we reinforce her natural instincts in her body and her, you know, that as she gets older, she has a sense of trusting intuitively, there's that word again, when to eat and how much to eat without attaching some kind of a consequence or meaning to it. That's great. We'll see. Yeah. How is it going so far? Like, how does she seem to be relating to food in her body now? Well, I think it's going well. I don't want to talk for her, but I will say that I do still struggle with my own judgments or instincts, learned instincts that flare around eating. So it's not effortless to divide the responsibilities. It's probably scary when you see her eating something that you have maybe a reflexive like diet culture reaction to or, you know, quote unquote, eating too much or quote unquote, not eating enough of particular things. Yes. And I know that that is my story, you know, that like I am bringing that to the table because of how I grew up and my own anxiety But I am, I mean, I don't know, maybe the pendulum has swung like too far. I do not talk about dieting. I do not talk about, you know, I I just like, we are a dry household when it comes to that kind of stuff. Like I do not subscribe to the same magazines I used to. I mean, I'm pretty uptight about it. Like I have even, you know, gotten kind of snippy with the members of the family about how they talked about her or her body or her food. And I I make a point to be, you know, naked around her a, a fair amount. Um, hopefully I can say that on the radio. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because like, you know, my body is just what it is, but I want her somewhere to have a memory or, or just an unconscious sense of like the normalcy of of a body, you know, with its lumps and bumps and the things that hang and the things that jiggle and, you know, all of that stuff. (laughs) So, and that's actually been really, it's been healing for me. And it's been something that's helped me kind of stay on the path because 
I just, I cannot model dieting for her. I just, I cannot do it. I won't let myself do it, you know? Yeah, totally. I'm sure it keeps you really committed because it's just like, I don't want this for her. Yeah, I really don't. And I already see just in like bits and pieces how it seeps in from the culture. I just, I already see it. You know, she's not even in kindergarten. And I hear her and her little friends talking about who's pretty. They don't even really know what that means, you know? But it's like, it's already there. So it does keep me committed. Yeah, it really is so insidious, the little ways that it creeps in already. But it sounds like you're creating such good boundaries in your household for that. Like you're making a safe space that it's diet culture free for her so that even though there's that stuff on the outside and I'm sure it'll get even more pronounced as she grows up I can only imagine what it's like to be a teenager now you know like I know god but that you have this sort of like safe place to come home to I think it's going to mean so much to her I hope so I certainly hope so I know my mom didn't have it and I know her mom didn't have it. I was talking about this stuff with my mom the other day, actually. And she told me how one of her memories of being a little girl is of being at the beach with her mom and her grandmom, who was an old lady. And how every time they were at the beach, her grandmom would point to other women and say, am I thinner than her or fatter than her? Oh, no. Yeah. And like, it was just kind of like, the grandma at the beach game. <laughs> so wow. it's, uh, this stuff just runs really deep. And I think you, you said something about being colonized earlier. And I think that's really the right word. So the, as much as I can shelter my little one from it, you know, the more, the better. Yeah, absolutely. I really hope that the work that you're doing in raising her that way, plus the work that like, we're both doing and that this whole movement we're a part of is doing to destigmatize larger bodies and to take down diet culture is going to help her generation grow up in a way that's not as hamstrung by all this stuff as we were because you know like you said in one of your blog posts how this just stole so much of your life you know and I, I always talk about diet culture as a life thief too like that it just takes us away from the pleasure and the little moments that we could be enjoying and like showing up to relationships and just showing up for ourselves, you know, and like, we'll never get that time back, but hopefully we can give it back to the next generation or to people down the line. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, that's partly why I do write about this stuff and, you know, talk about it aloud is because hopefully when you do some of your own work aloud, <laughs> it, like it holds space for other people. And that's definitely one of my goals as a mom is to do that for my, my child. Absolutely. And also just to, I think like people really see themselves in, I mean, I know reading your stuff, I, I really was like struck by the details and the sort of little things that I was like, oh yeah, like I remember doing that in my dieting days, or I've had clients tell me that they do that, you know, like it's like so evocative just to tell your personal story and to see like how common and similar some of our struggles are. Thank you for saying that. That's one of the tricks, right? That diet culture or patriarchy maybe plays on us is that it has us kind of shut in these padded soundproof rooms thinking that 
all of our experiences are just our own. But when we start talking about them and seeing that the personal is political, as the saying goes, there is like momentum and power there and it's freeing to individuals. But I mean, hopefully, maybe this is one of the missing puzzles, right? In terms of creating a more equitable world for women and girls and, and for men too, because with freedom, like the more we're free, the better it is for everyone. Absolutely. Not to get too philosophical about it, but it's true. I totally agree. I think that's exactly right. And also to sort of recognize the, because I think a lot of people in this day and age want to be more woke, you know, they mm-hmm. want to be, they want to be doing the right thing. And they realize the sort of depths of how messed up things are in our society. But one of the ways that I think, uh, you know, and uh, I think that like even people who are the most woke on different issues like race and sexual orientation or, or gender or whatever sometimes miss still is the stuff about body size and, and oh, body completely. image, you know, and that like that is all a part of it. It's all a part of the same struggle for liberation that people in all kinds of other bodies and identities are feeling. That is so true. It's funny you say that because sometimes I'll just be kind of going through my week and I'll kind of catalog the little fat phobic microaggressions, you might call them, or just the little fat phobic things I heard. And I never really know how to address them, you know, maybe with someone who's really close to me and I can kind of have a private moment with them. That's one thing, but like in a group setting, you know, and I, I have this fantasy of being able to go back in time and say to people like, can you imagine saying this about a different group of people? Mm -hmm. Like, can you imagine saying this about black people or trans people or immigrants or whatever? Like I was in a wedding recently and it was a beautiful wedding and I wouldn't change a thing except the photographer was trying to kind of, as the women were lining up for pictures, the photographer was kind of, getting people to look slimmer by like putting their arm this way or their chin that way or whatever. And then as we are wont to do, the women all kind of chirped in with like, oh yeah, God, I had a lot of bread yesterday or, you know, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Like imagine if they were saying like, just try to, if you, your skin will look lighter if you, if you stand this way, like just, just try to smush your nose. So it's not as broad. Like it just like, we wouldn't tolerate it, basically. No. We would call it what it is, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that the experience of fatness is equivalent to the experience of any other marginalized or subordinated group, but they're connected. They're connected. And if you understand the idea of intersectionality, like you know that they're really connected. That like for me as like a, a brown black woman, when I hear those things, I can't separate them from my race because they aren't wholly separate from my race. So fat phobic comments are racial comments to me. And I think, yeah, at some level they, they, you know, at least historically, they kind of always were. And now it's like, there's definitely obviously different ways that racism and fat phobia show up in the world and for different people who maybe have like one of the, you know, one identity, but not another or have both or multiple marginalized identities. Like those experiences are also different, but yeah, I think it's inextricable. Like we can't look at, we can't say like 
let's eradicate fat phobia and everybody, no matter the size of their body, should be accepted and respected and not yeah. also say that about every other marginalized group, right? We can't, It's not like we can just target one form of oppression and forget about all the others because they are all connected. And like, I forget who said it. And I think maybe, maybe it was even someone on this podcast, but probably quoting someone else saying like that all oppression is connected, you know, that it's, yeah, it's the system that the roots are sort of intertwining underground, even if the sprouts look different up top. Mm-hmm. Totally. That's, I couldn't have said it better myself. I wish I could remember who said that originally. Maybe it was you. <laughs> Maybe it was me. I do sometimes forget when I say things. And then I'll be like, oh, my, uh, I have a, a person who helps me out with like doing memes for social media. And she'll, she'll sometimes put like one together that I'm like, oh, my God, I completely forgot I said that. And like, that's a really good quote. Like, <laughs> it's from like ages ago. Nice. Yeah. Oh, it's so good talking with you. And I, one thing that I wanted to get into that we totally haven't really had time for, but maybe just have like a quick moment at the end to talk about is your experience being a lawyer and mm. some of the fat phobia and racism and stuff that's come up for you in that field. And, you know, you talked a little bit about that in um, this column by Virgie Tovar that we'll link to in the show notes for this episode about your experience of being a, a larger bodied woman in in the workplace in general. But also just, you know, curious sort of like from your perspective as a lawyer, what it would look like to have justice for and like protection for the class of protections for body size, the way that we do have legal protections for like race or gender or other forms of identity in terms of like not being allowed to discriminate in hiring, for example, or other, you know, housing or things like that. Well, I think in terms of my professional experience, it's a place where my body size and my fatness are deeply, deeply linked to my being a Black woman. So anything I experience is kind of a swipe or a jab at one of those identities. I also experience with the other because at least in the professional context, they really merge for me. And I think that, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, supposedly America is a really fat country, but like there's not a lot of really fat lawyers and you could write a book about that and like opportunity and class and all of that kind of stuff. But the same also goes for Black women, well, Black people generally, but also Black women. So I think that in the kind of the pressure of otherness, both of those aspects of myself really stand out. And in our culture, we have some really damaging and kind of unconscious stereotypes about big Black women, you know, like I was talking about earlier. So professionally, they're basically the opposite of professional. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So if I'm going into court and I'm in a suit and I have my briefcase and I'm in my heels or whatever, I'm aware that I have, I, like, I am really, really playing against type from a sort of cultural bias perspective. So yeah, I can't really divorce the two and, and for, for myself. As far as, you know, protections against discrimination and bias for fat people, I should preface this by saying that this is not my area of expertise. And so there, I'm sure that there are scholars out there who who know more about this than I do. But I mean, as you probably know, those protections are 
almost non-existent. I think Michigan maybe has some protections around fat discrimination in the workplace, but by and large, they just don't exist. And I think that that's, you know, that's for a, a few different reasons. I mean, one is that the law usually grants these types of protections to classes of people. And that class of people has to be able to, you know, show that that as a whole class, they're likely to experience certain kinds of discrimination or negative impacts, right? And I think in a sense, fatness is it's not, it's like a club people don't want to join. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like of all the fat people in the country, there's probably like a dozen who want to go like lobby Congress and be like, we're in this group of fat people and we all experience this kind of, you know, systemic hatred or whatever. So I think part of it is like fat people's own distaste, which of course is like a reflection of internalized oppression for fat people. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I think we also have a really, really strong sense in our culture that fatness is a choice. And the law, it's always going to protect classes of people more when we don't think it's a choice. Like you don't choose your race, at least for the most part, you know, or as the law understands it, you don't choose your gender. They're called immutable traits and and legal speak. And we just don't think fatness is something that you kind of are or are not. We think of it as a, a choice and often as a failing. And we're less likely to offer protection to any group of people where we think that the cause of their discrimination is partly their own failing to measure up. So I think we have a very, very, very long way to go. And most of it is not legal. You know, I think most of the work is like your podcast and like, you know, this kind of stuff happening that's beginning, you know, like turning a huge ship. It's like slowly shifting the way people think about body size. Right. And it sounds like maybe the law kind of lags behind that shift in the culture, at least in this case, because yeah, like we have to turn the ship towards like understanding that body size is actually immutable in a sense in that like, yes, you can change it short term, you can suppress your weight short term, but long term, that's not possible. And actually, you know, there's decades of good research showing that even though that research doesn't really get the airtime in the mainstream health, prof you know. Yeah, not yet. Not, <laughs> not yet. yet. Exactly. It's st it's starting to. They pulled out a BMI chart at my daughter's two year, at my daughter's two year checkup. Oh so, my God. And I was like, put that away. Yes. So it's, it's not out there all the way yet, but, you know, little by little. And I think you know, I'm sure anyone can remember or think back to the 60s and, and see pictures of like, you know, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud or black is beautiful. Like there has to be a sort of critical mass of the group who want to band together and experience their identity and live it aloud and with pride. And I think that's growing, right? Yeah. Yeah. The more people are like, screw this, I'm not dieting. My body is going to be what it is the closer we are to that. But I don't, I don't think we're there quite yet. I also think like some people have made the legal argument like in lawsuits that 
They should have protection from some, you know, being fired because they're fat, for example, because fatness is a disability. And it's not for me to say what's right or wrong for any plaintiff in a particular case. But to me, that seems like a very troubling road if we were to, you know, head down that en masse. Yeah. (laughs) Of course, I'm not saying fatness cannot be a disability for a particular person or be related to a disability, but like on a public policy perspective, that would seem to me like really doubling down and kind of moving backwards on some of the fat phobic diet culture stuff that we already are trying to undo. Right. Absolutely. Those are great points. And I think that probably goes a long way to explaining like why it is such a tiny fraction, of, you know, of all the municipalities and states and stuff in this country that have any sort of protection. Because I think there's like a couple cities in California, maybe Santa Cruz has some law in the books about this and like maybe a couple other cities. But it's yeah, there's almost no government has has come down with legal protections for larger bodies. And I think that's that makes a lot of sense, you know, that we just don't have that critical mass yet of people who are willing to fight. But it it is getting there. Like it is, I mean, every day I feel like I'm seeing something new where I'm just like, oh wow, like Samantha B just like talked about, had like a segment on her show about fat positivity and why dieting doesn't really? work. And like, yeah, it's awesome. I can send it to you. Yes, please. I would love that. Yeah. She has two writers who are fat, Ashley Nicole Black and I forget the other one. I listened to Ashley Nicole Black's podcast and it's really good. But and she like talks about, you know, just sort of in passing, talks about fat positivity. So I was like, oh, she's really cool. And then saw this segment and was just like, hell yeah, like that is, that's awesome. And just another interview I just saw with some author, like a memoirist or something. I don't even know what she's famous for or anything, but just like in that book, apparently there was something about being stigmatized for her size and she was being interviewed on like some talk show. So Well, you know, it's interesting that both of these people that you've pointed out are women, right? Because that's actually legally another piece of the puzzle. I mean, to the extent that law really is about how we order society and how we keep order in society. And we live in a society with a lot of hierarchy. That's part of the order, right? So to the extent that fatness and fat discrimination are going to impact women who are lower on the hierarchy more intensely, then it's harder to build that wave of change because it's not affecting someone who's at the top. Right. That's interesting. One more. And, and you know, the, it's just any identity at the bottom, <laughs> like who's going to experience fatness or discrimination around fatness in a more severe way, person of color, transgender person, whatever it is, immigrant, native person, like it's going to be deemed less important, basically. That's just the way hierarchy works. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it sort of compounds the oppression and yeah, and makes yeah. it less sort of likely that the mainstream or that the, the people in positions of power are going to take the complaint seriously. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Mm. Well, that is really interesting to know. And I hope that like just getting this idea out there that like legal protections probably are not going to come until we have some social change at like the more philosophical level Mm -hmm. maybe can help, you know, push things in that direction. Cause I I do think we really need all of it. You know, we really need the the cultural change and the philosophical change and we Mm -hmm. need legal protections too for people because there is 
incontrovertible evidence that people in larger bodies have higher rates of discrimination in employment, mm-hmm. are paid lower less, salaries. lower salaries. Yeah. yeah, exactly. More likely to be fired, I think, too. Like, just all of it. Yeah, exactly. Little by little. Mm-hmm. Little by little. Yes. Well, I love your work and I love what you're doing to help in this fight and making change. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Christy. This has been humbling and really fun and wonderful. You're very easy to talk to. I'm sure you hear that all the time. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You are too. You're amazing. I I had such a good time on this conversation. Thank you. This has really been such a treat. I honestly, I, when I saw your Instagram, you know, message or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I was pinching myself. I was Aww. like, is this for real? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I can't thank you enough. I really can't. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure talking with you. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Savala Tripchinsky for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And by the way, you can find Savala on her website at savalat.com. That's S-A-V-A-L-A-T.com. I forgot to have her mention that in the end of the episode. So there you go. Now you can find her online. And if you're looking for some practical guidance to help you get started on your own anti-diet path, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, whatever that may be. Sharing on one of the Apple platforms is really helpful because it brings us up in the podcast ranking so that more people discover us and so that we can continue to drown out the pro-diet messages in the health category and keep rising up through those ranks. We've recently reached the top 20 and top 10 health podcasts, which is so amazing, and I would love your help to stay there and really represent a new paradigm to people who are just browsing through the health charts, which may be how some of you all found the podcast. And, you know, I think those are likely the folks who really need this message most. So if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, just click the three dots at the bottom right of the screen on on this episode and then click share episode. And you can also go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to find all the places that you can subscribe and share the podcast. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we mentioned, plus a full transcript, just go to christyharrison.com slash 191. That's christyharrison.com slash 191. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, break free from diet culture, and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my food psych programs team, including our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasik, and our transcript assistant, Kiara McClellan, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble, and our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Ooh.